It's uh, great to be here today with all of you, and uh, uh, this is my first Water for Food conference, and so uh, what, a, what a neat opportunity to have a conversation about really, really important, compelling issues. And in fact, as I think about that today, my guess is that all of you are here because you were compelled to be here by your interest or your work or the, the, the things that you do to make a difference. And wouldn't it be great if everybody around this globe shared your commitment to this incredibly compelling message? The reality is that they don't. And that's part of what Extension is about as we think about the work that we do to go from research to practice to impact. And how do we do that? And, and, and my, uh, my talk today, my, my comments today will focus on really three areas. First, I'd like to share with you just a little bit about how Extension is organized in the United States and specifically in Nebraska. Secondly, I'd like to talk about, and, and, and Dr. Fabricius, what a wonderful uh, segue from uh, the work, the comments that you just made around change, because that's really what we're talking about is, is how people choose to change, whether or not they make that choice, and, and what are the motivations that might uh, uh, enhance that or not. And then thirdly, to use this incredible drought that we had last summer, uh, this flash drought that really came across the United States and especially the Central High Plains, and use that as a, as a case study to demonstrate some of the work that we do to try to push this process of research to practice to impact. So why is this so important? I think you all know these things. Obviously, feeding a hungry world is is a key part of what we're, we're talking about today. Uh, the impact on natural resources, uh, uh, the rural economy, and certainly as we think across Nebraska and the High Plains, you know, what are we going to do to help sustain and grow this rural economy? And what does that look like in the future? And how do droughts really impact that? The government is a big part of this, and, and certainly in terms of the economy, but tax revenue. And as droughts impact uh, productivity and profitability, that impacts tax revenue that supports our schools and our hospitals and our roads and many of the things that in good times we take for granted. And so that's an issue. Families and children are impacted by drought. And we recognize that and, and we're concerned about that and we want to respond to that in productive ways. And then the thing that we all know, because it's been talked about, is the cascading impacts, how this is so interrelated and how a drought, <clears throat> excuse me, for example, impacts forage and grain production and how that impacts farmers and, and, and feeders, livestock feeders, and how that impacts biofuels production and uh, ultimately how that impacts prices and, and just all the kinds of things that happen. And so the cascading impacts, the in intricacies of, of what we deal with in a drought situation are truly incredible. So let me just take a quick walk with you, and, and especially for those who are maybe not as familiar with Cooperative Extension and the work that we do, uh, about our roots, where we came from. Uh, the Morrill Act was passed in 1862. Abraham Lincoln was mentioned yesterday, uh, I guess last night, and uh, <clears throat> uh, passed the Morrill Act of 1862 that basically built the land-grant university system. <clears throat> and in that process, developed a, a model to educate, educate the industrial classes. 
1887, the Hatch Act was passed by Congress that formed the Ag Experiment Stations. And, and you know, a lot of faculty at the land-grant universities were doing research long before 1887. This just made it formal and made it a, 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 a part of the process. And then the Smith-Lever Act of, of 1914 that formalized cooperative extension and said that a big part of the role of the land-grant university is to translate and transform research-based information into forms and formats that people can really use. And so that's our, that's our mission. That's what Cooperative Extension does. And there's a couple of key elements there that I think are really important. One, research-based. The work that we do must be research-based. And the wonderful thing I'll show you in just a second is we have a national network of land-grant universities who are engaged in conducting research that makes a difference. We depend on that network to fuel the work that we do. The other thing about being research-based is that we focus to the best of our ability to be unbiased and to provide information that is, is based on research and, and things that we can count on, things that uh, uh, people can count on as being unbiased. And then translating research into forms and formats that people can use. And that's changing very, very dramatically today. And that's part of what I want to talk about here in just a few minutes. This is this national system of over 75 land-grant universities across this United States. And uh, an incredible network of people. And certainly, there are faculty at, at all of these institutions who care about water and they care about food production and they're engaged in these kinds of things. And, and so we establish very robust networks across universities to try to respond to these issues and opportunities. And this is what it looks like in Nebraska. University of Nebraska-Lincoln extensions uh, reach across this state. Uh, you can see, uh, uh, as you look at that, a number of research centers scattered across the state, looking at the different eco-zones as we go across Nebraska. I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute. But uh, an opportunity to conduct research side-by-side uh, -side across the road from the farmers that we serve. And, and what a wonderful opportunity to really engage and, and be part of that. And then the blue dots that demonstrate that we have extension offices in 83 of our 93 counties in the state of Nebraska. That means extension and our personnel are local and we engage local people and we build relationships, we build friendships with people that help build trust and help build the kind of communication that needs to occur if we're going to be effective in our mission of translating research-based information. Every state will be a little bit different. This is the way we staff extension in Nebraska. Uh, we have a group of uh, uh, primarily tenure-track faculty who are extension specialists. Uh, we have about 120 people that serve in that role. Uh, many of them will have a research assignment. So we have research and extension tied in the same person. And one of the things we really believe in Nebraska and a number of the land grants is that research and extension must be joined at the hip. We must work together. Archie Clotter is here. Archie is the uh, dean and director of the Ag Research Division here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And Archie and I see the world alike. We have to have good, solid, robust research, and we have to have methods to translate and transform that research into forms and formats that people can use. So much of the work that our research and extension specialists do, very applied research, translating science, and then developing program resources that can be delivered. So decision support tools, web resources, uh, curricula, other kinds of things that uh, we can help deliver through our extension educators. 
Uh, if you look at the focus of our extension specialists, the large focus, the predominant focus is on ag and natural resources. Some work in the human sciences area around nutrition and families, and then uh, a number work in youth and youth development primarily in our 4-H program. We have extension agents and uh, educators in some cases, in some states they're called agents, and, uh, and that's a very important role, about 150. In Nebraska, they are uh, special appointment faculty. This is a really important point. And their job, and I thought, uh, Paul, you made a great point yesterday about this idea of applied research and demonstration. And you know, Extension has done that over the years, but to my notion, and I think to yours, it's never been more important than right now today as we think about how we share uh, research results, how we speed the rate of technology transfer. And then extension educators who are also focused on and responsible for educational program delivery, developed in, in, in conjunction with extension specialists working together, but really it's about the educators and their role in helping to deliver this information that's critically important. Funding for extension comes from lots of different levels of federal funding that we, uh, we uh, benefit from and enjoy uh, in Nebraska across this country. Uh, Smith Lever funds for extension, hash funds for research, and the Ag and Food Research uh, Initiative that is the Competitive Grants Program of uh, USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. Those greatly benefit us. And the first two are really what are called capacity funds. These are dollars that come to the University of Nebraska and all the land-grant universities to help hire the people that are going to do the work to allow us to be ready when things happen like drought. You know, you think about what would it be like if you had a drought and your response was that you had to write a research proposal, uh, get it funded, hire the people, do the research, and three years later you were ready with the, result, with the results. That just doesn't work. And so a key part of what these funds are used to do is to fund the personnel who are going to do this work in advance so that we're ready and we're prepared when these things happen. A wonderful commitment of the state of Nebraska to support extension through budgets, counties as well. Uh, and uh, uh, commodity boards and industry partners that provide resources to help us get this work done. Uh, it's, it's a complex myriad of funding uh, as we work to make this happen. So what do we expect of extension professionals? One uh, that's really important to me is we have to work on really, really important things. We have to focus on things that are important that make a difference. You know, I tell people, if it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't make a difference. Why are we doing that, you know? And, and, and I think somehow, sometimes we get wrapped up in doing the same thing over and over again, and that's not good, it's not healthy, and it doesn't help us address the real needs of this state. It's really important as we decide what we're gonna work on that we interact and engage with our stakeholders. And that's a big part of what we do. You talk about that local presence, our connection with commodity boards, uh, state and federal agencies. There's just lots of opportunities to do this. We expect our extension pro, uh, professionals to be innovative in the way they do their extension work. And you know, the way learning occurs now uh, with all the technology that we have available, I'm gonna talk about some of those things, but it's changed the way we engage learners. And in fact, that's who we work with, lifelong learners who are interested in this case, uh, food production and water resource management. Resourcing is always a question and we're always looking for new ways to resource our programs. And then the bottom line, and this is the one the taxpayers always appreciate, the idea that we expect our folks to make a difference, that there will be an impact, there will be something that allows us to answer the so what question that is so critical as, as taxpayers think about their uh, investment. So 
A key part of what we do in Nebraska and extension across the U.S. is, is really in collaboration. The old model of extension is where we're the experts and everybody else is not. Well, guess what? That never worked, it never did, and it never should have. And we never should have had that idea. The reality is this opportunity to co-learn, co-discover, and develop solutions together is so powerful. And we are absolutely blessed in Nebraska and in other states to have a long list of collaborators that really give us incredible capacity to do this work. And, and you know, the reality is for much of this, we're in this together. And so these collaborations, these partnerships are really, really crucial as we think about the work that we're doing. I wanna call out uh, two of these uh, uh, collaborations that I think are really important in Nebraska. Uh, we've reorganized what uh, at one time were soil and water conservation districts that were, that were county-based into natural resource districts that are basin-based, uh, watershed-based. And so you see a map of those up in the upper right-hand corner. These are citizen-driven, uh, local, uh, commitments to help manage natural resources, including water, and they're a wonderful partner that you'll learn more about here in just a few minute, minutes. And another emerging partner that's really, really important to us as we go, go forward are the private partners. And uh, we've got one of those that's developing right now that we're so excited about. Uh, Monsanto has a water resources learning lab at Gothenburg. And uh, Chandler Mazur uh, was here yesterday, maybe he's here today, but uh, he runs that thing. And one of the things that happened about two years ago was that Chandler came to us, came to Don Adams at the West Central Research and Extension Center and said, we'd like to partner in a more meaningful way. How about if we share a position? Oh my gosh, are you serious? An extension educator who works half-time funded by a private company and half-time by extension, can we do that? Oh my goodness, well, we did. And Chuck Burr is here today, an extension educator who works out of that water resources learning lab and is doing some absolutely incredible things. And you know, the cool thing about it is that Chuck's role in this partnership is to help farmers learn how to manage their water resource better. Not once has Chuck ever been asked to promote a Monsanto product. To me, that seems like the perfect relationship. It preserves our identity, our integrity, and our focus on being unbiased uh, providers of information. This is kind of the way that we go about doing things like responding to this drought. And uh, there's, uh, there's about five key elements here, and I'm gonna break these down, and we're gonna study these just in a little bit more detail. Uh, but the first really important issue for us is we really have to know what we're working with. We have to know our environment, we have to know the people, we have to know uh, best practices driven by, by research and especially the, the rapidly emerging research that we have right now today. So we really, we have to keep ourselves up to date. You know, one of the models of extension is that we're facilitators and we, you know, we're matchmakers and we bring people together who know stuff. That's not good enough. We need to know stuff. We need to be experts and we need to be able to be part of that conversation. And yeah, we'll facilitate, we'll, do, we'll be the matchmaker where that makes sense. Secondly, to monitor what's going on so that in fact, we can be as proactive as we possibly can be. So watching the signals, watching uh, uh, what's going on, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, preparing, helping farmers and people who live in these environments prepare for whatever is coming. And you know what, in Nebraska, drought is coming. We either are, are preparing for, dealing with, or recovering from a drought. That's just the way of life here, it's, it's the way it is. And so applying new tools and managing for drought in advance so that we're ready when it comes. 
And when it does come, Extension's role to take action, to be part of the solution and to be out there and engaging with people so that uh, we, can, we can help them deal with it. Practicing adaptive management that changes almost every day in some instances, and again, best practices. And then the last piece for us, we need to know what works and what doesn't work. And so the assessment piece where we ask ourselves and we ask the people we work with, what worked, what didn't work, what can we learn, what can be different? Okay, here's the deal. Extension is about change. And you know, there's a lot of people in this world that are willing to think about change, and there's a whole lot of people who are not really willing to think about change and don't like it, and in fact would prefer that everything stay just the way it was, okay? Now, I don't know about you, that doesn't seem like reality to me. <clears throat> As I think about the incredible change that we're going through in our society and, uh, and the work that we do, this is a model, it's called the Ad Car Change Model. It reflects much, much of, of what Christo was talking about here just a few minutes ago. But this idea <clears throat> that when people change, there's, there's kind of a process. Uh, first is to become aware of whatever the change might be, whatever the issue might be. Secondly, maybe transforming that awareness into a desire to do something different. And uh, maybe there's a sense of urgency around that, maybe there's not. And then thirdly, what knowledge do I need, especially if this change involves a change in, in practice, something that I'm gonna, going to use, a, a, a new tool or implement or decision support system or whatever, what knowledge do I need? And in, in our context, we think about research-based knowledge as a key. And then a person might get to the point where they're ready to try it, you know, do a little pilot. They might uh, practice a little bit and decide if it works for them. And if it works for them, then they might, might actually decide that they're gonna do it. And at that point, reinforcement is really a key. The confidence building that needs to occur and the troubleshooting that needs to occur. Because you know, believe it or not, the applications of much of what we know about drought is gonna be different on virtually every farm, on every field across this country. And so we can't assume that there's kind of a blanket application of what this looks like. Okay, so there's a couple of things about this model to think about. One is, we all know people, many of you are in this room, that you go from awareness to practice in the blink of an eye. And isn't it fun to work with people who move that quickly? You know, they're on the bleeding cutting edge. They're willing to try something just because it looks interesting and it looks promising and they're ready to try it. And then there's others that maybe take a more... Uh, uh, reasoned or, or a, a slower approach to this process of change. And they're the ones that we can work with. We can help build their understanding. We can help build their sense of urgency. And at some point they may choose to change. <clears throat> and then there's a group of people out there that say no. In fact, when they think about change, they say, hell no. And one of my First mentors, Dr. Bob Todeshek, head of the Animal Science Department at Oklahoma State University said, so Chuck, what do you do with uh, the people that say no? And I said, well, I don't, I guess I don't know for sure. That seems hard. How do you work with people who say no? And Dr. Todeshek said, well, the first thing you do is listen to them because they might be right, okay? That's, that's part of this process as well. So I, the point I really wanna make, and if you don't take anything else home from my talk today, I hope you take this home, is this idea that change for most people is a choice. 
and it's a choice they might be willing to make given the right imperative, the right information, knowledge, and the right support to make it happen. And so in some cases we mandate change, like for example, putting on pumping restrictions or things like that, and people have to figure out how to deal with that. And so that's a little heavier handed approach to this, but even under those circumstances, people will still choose the way they respond to those kinds of things. So it's really about change and it's really about choice. Okay, so let's kind of walk through just uh, uh, some examples, some ideas about uh, how this might work. And we're gonna use this flash drought of 2012, the most severe drought that we've experienced in Nebraska in history, and one that came on so quickly that uh, most of us weren't really expecting it to, to arrive. And when it came, it hit with a vengeance and, and it came so fast. And so the first thing I wanna talk about is, is how we study and know our environment. Uh, as how do we really understand uh, what's going on? And so knowing your environment or your ecosystem is, is a key part of, of what we really need to know. Uh, this is uh, the Missouri Basin, the percent of the area of the Missouri Basin experiencing severe to extreme drought uh, going back to 1895. And guess what? We have drought in Nebraska. It happens on a not exactly a regular basis, but it happens on a routine basis. And you look at some of those bars, some of them are narrower, some of them are wider, but the reality is we do experience drought. So guess what? We should be preparing for drought. That's part of the message there. We should also be preparing because as you look at that, certainly there are years where the drought extended. And so what happens when we deal with a drought that occurs and, and extends itself beyond one or two years. How do we deal with that? How do we, how do we help farmers and local businesses and communities and families deal with that? Here's another one that's really important in Nebraska. We have four major ecozones in Nebraska. Uh, kind of the Midwest corn producing region of, of Eastern Nebraska, uh, more of the uh, Central High Plains corn producing uh, region of Central Nebraska the Sand Hills region in, in north central Nebraska, and then the semi-arid high elevation plains of, of western Nebraska. And so when we think in Nebraska about solutions, the solutions that we might provide and encourage really have to be uh, couched within the context of the ecozone that we're working in. And so that's one thing that we really need to understand as we think about dealing with drought. Here's the other one. These are the number of irrigation wells, registered irrigation wells in Nebraska as of 2007. And there's a few more than now than there were before. The red dots in, indicate a real concentration of irrigation wells. And so as we work with farmers and we think about these areas, there's areas, there are farmers who have options because they have irrigation. In fact, Nebraska has more irrigated land than any other state as, as a percentage. It's a real resource that we have. But we also have farmers, you look down into the southeast corner of Nebraska, uh, parts of western Nebraska that are rain fed. And so a difference in terms of how we work with and help people deal with drought based on this incredible resource that we have in Nebraska. This is also, and many of you in the room also understand this very clearly, you follow the pattern of the red dots, they follow the Platte River. And all of, all of the uh, uh, interesting challenges that we face as we think about hydrogeologically hydro connected groundwater and how we manage that for the good of, of farming and agriculture, but also for our natural resources 
and for Nebraskans. So it's complex. So studying and understanding the territory, the, the work, the, the environment, the culture that we live and work in is incredibly important. And those are just a couple of examples. Secondly, because we know that drought is, a, is going to occur, it's really important for us to monitor and to be vigilant. We have an incredible resource in the United States called the National Drought Mitigation Center. This happens to be located at the University of Nebraska. Uh, it is uh, fed by the High Plains Climate uh, Change Center. And uh, this uh, uh, National Drought Mitigation Center, these folks do a wonderful job of helping us stay on top of the droughts and, and, and the kinds of things that we have to deal with. And, and uh, this is an incredible resource for us, not only in Nebraska, but across the US, because it gives us real-time data, or near real-time data in many instances, but also helps in the interpretation and understanding of what that data might mean. And so uh, this is a really important center. We are searching for longer term funding for this center. This is something that uh, we put together and, and we've held it together, uh, but uh, long term funding is an issue and, and that's an issue for all of us. So the uh, Drought Mitigation Center does some great work. And here's an example. So we're gonna go back to March 6, 2012, a little over a year ago. And for those of you that uh, live in this region of the world, you know what happened in March last year. We had unseasonably warm uh, conditions and conditions that were just right for planting. So guess what everybody did? They planted early, right? I mean, it was a farmer's heyday. We were planting like crazy. And uh, this long extended warm period got our crops off to a wonderful start. And you might think, wow, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, uh, something happened and something very seriously happened. Uh, this drought monitor, and what I'd really like to you to focus on, because I've got a, a, a time sequence here that'll, that'll help you understand, first of all, how valuable this information is to us, but secondly, uh, how we can understand and prepare for and deal with what happens. So you go back to March 2012, you look at Nebraska and most of Kansas, and you know, we're in the clear. Life is good. Uh, you look further south, and that's the other region I'd like you to focus on, is Oklahoma, Texas, parts of Kansas, uh, New Mexico, uh, in, a, in a lingering drought. And this is important because part of our adaptive management to drought is to ship cattle to other places. It's a great way to extend your forage resource, right? What if the other place is also suffering from a drought? That, that's a real challenge for us. Okay, so this is March 6, focus on Nebraska, and then look to the south. Here's what it looked like on June 26. Oh goodness, this doesn't look good. We've, we're beginning to see signs of drought uh, uh, emerging up into Nebraska. Uh, Texas, uh, Oklahoma have, have moderated a little bit, but still in a drought. So that's June 26. Here we are, September 4th. I tell people, if you, uh, if you have a heart condition, don't look at this. This is, this is incredible. And uh, yeah, Keith was chuckling because he was right. He was like, dead center in the middle of this, Keith uh, uh, Olson uh, from southwestern Nebraska. But you see what developed, and it developed so incredibly rapidly. So, you know, you go from June concerned to September severe. And now we go to January, this drought continues. And the key thing here compared to a year ago, a year ago, we entered the growing season with good subsoil moisture. What happened this year? we entered the growing season with virtually no subsoil moisture. Now we move forward to April uh, 30th of this year, 
uh, this, the most recent drought monitor, and you can begin to see it's moderating a little bit in southeast Nebraska, but still most of Nebraska is in extreme or exceptional drought. And so this gives us a clue of what we need to be focusing on as we go forward. Now, the good thing, and this is the other thing that the Drought Mitigation Center does for us, is to really help us look forward. So this is a 90-day look forward uh, starting May 2nd, and it does show eastern Nebraska uh, perhaps coming out of this drought a little bit, but most of Nebraska in, a, in, a, in an area that it, they call some improvement, so it could go either way. And, you know, the reality is we're now at a point where timely rain, time, timely precipitation or irrigation is going to be the key. And so uh, we can help farmers make decisions around that kind of perspective. But as you can see, these data are so powerful for us as we think about how we work with farmers, how we work with communities, how we help people deal with this. So Here's one other thing I wanted to mention. There was a conversation about climate change yesterday, and uh, Tapan Pathak in the uh, uh, School of Natural Resources has been monitoring soil temperature as it relates to first planting date for corn. And what this, what this chart does is it identifies uh, planting dates observed in the most recent decade, 2000 to 2009, compared to the prior decade of 1990 to 1999, okay? And so the lighter red is an area where, based on soil temperature, we could plant a week earlier. The medium red is uh, based on soil temperature where we could plant two weeks earlier. And then there's a small dark red dot in north central Nebraska where we could plant perhaps three weeks earlier based on soil temperature. Now this is interesting. Is this climate change? There's probably an element of that, absolutely. But what it means is that farmers are beginning to change their practice around planting date and how does that help them and as, as they deal with an extended drought. So really important information going forward. Okay, so we've studied, we've monitored, we, you know, we kind of know what's going on. How do we help people in Nebraska prepare to deal with a drought? Um, here's a couple of things. Well, first of all, National Drought Mitigation Center, again, has some wonderful resources to help ranch managers, for example, uh, prepare for a drought. And this was incredibly important this year. At our Goodmanson Sandhills uh, Laboratory, a, a, a large cattle research laboratory in the middle of the Sandhills, we had stored a year's worth of hay. Now, a normal rancher wouldn't store a year's worth of hay. Uh, but we do because it's research. We got to make sure we have enough hay for the cows. Um, by March 1st, that year's worth of hay was gone. Now you can imagine what farmers were dealing, or ranchers rather, were dealing with under that circumstance. But the point is that this work helps us work with ranchers to prepare for drought. What kinds of grazing strategies, what kinds of stockpiling strategies with forages, uh, what kinds of hay production do you need to think about, what should your stocking rate be, how many cows, all those kinds of things so that we can be resilient as we think about the next coming drought and how we might manage uh, through that. We also help communities think through this, and certainly it's, a, it's an issue in terms of community water supply, uh, but it's also an issue from the standpoint of businesses and families and, and schools and others. And so drought-ready communities is, is another example of the work that we do to help communities be ready. And some of you know Bob Klein. Bob uh, worked at the West Central Research and Extension Center. I shouldn't say worked, he's kind of retired, but not really. Uh, Bob just kind of keeps going. But he's done some really nice work, and, and the focus of this work is planting corn under rain-fed conditions, but managing the cover so that 
His objective is to try to reduce the evaporation, the E and ET. It's the one thing that we can manage a little bit going forward. And so you can see in this case, this is what's called skip row corn, where you plant every other row or one out of three or two out of three different variations. But the idea is that you manage the moisture in the open row. And as you manage that moisture and the corn plant grows, the roots extend into that area that has not been used. The moisture is still there, uh, especially if we've done a good job of managing the residue and weeds. And so in the process, uh, uh, those corn plants can grow and uh, produce. And uh, in that particular setting, this skip row corn produced 70 bushels per acre. That's a very respectable yield for dryland corn. And so this is an example of some of the research. We're doing lots of different kinds of research. This just happens to be a very practical, applied kind of a research project. The Nebraska Ag Water Management uh, Network was mentioned yesterday. And this is an, another example of, of research to practice. And what this really is, uh, uh, Dr. Swat Ermach, uh, when he came in about uh, 2003 or four to the University of Nebraska, was really interested in how farmers use irrigation water and interested in, in helping us develop better models to use that water. And he partnered with people like Gary Zoback, Gary's sitting right out here, extension educator in York County and other extension educators to think about how do we build this network and how do we speed the, the technology uh, change that needs to occur if, if, in fact, we're going to save water. And the objectives of this work, this network, uh, were to better manage irrigation, conserve water and energy, because it costs energy, it costs money to pump irrigation water in Nebraska, in most cases, and then uh, increase plant water use efficiency by thinking about how we apply water when the plant needs it. We partnered with the Natural Resource Districts, uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, and Crop Consultants. So it was a very collaborative uh, network uh, uh, a partnership, and uh, that was a key part of it. And uh, it does what I just said in terms of integrating plant growth stage soil moisture evapotranspiration using ET gauges and soil water sensors. And the NRDs were very helpful in helping us fund some of this technology that uh, would help uh, farmers uh, uh, apply this technology. Well, so what? In 2005, when, when SWAT and Gary and others really started this, they started with 15 farmers, okay? And they put these uh, instruments to use on their farm and they began to think about and help farmers think about how they would use this technology to better manage their water supply. By 2012, 850 farmers, 23 of the 24 NRDs were engaged 60 counties and 1.3 million irrigated acres had been involved in this process. And educational programs as a result of this that reached out to over 13,000 people. And so clearly in, in that short period of time between 2005 and 2012, a very widespread adoption and, and engagement in, uh, this, uh, uh, in, in this network. And here's the bottom line. Farmers are reporting over two inches of water savings on both soybeans and corn, and the associated reduction in, in pumping cost and, and electricity use. And, and so that's a real impact. That's a real difference. You know, uh, uh, it's something that we're, we're extremely proud of, but it does exactly what, 
what we were talking about yesterday in terms of partnering with farmers to share technology and then helping them learn how to use that, to adopt that technology and then use it to make a difference. And so we're extremely proud of this and other examples of, of applied on-farm research and demonstration work. Here's another one that's been mentioned and we're extremely proud of this as well. Uh, this is a partnership between our Ag Econ department and the uh, 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 Biological Systems Engineering Department to, uh, to focus on uh, how uh, helping people using this decision support tool to make decisions about water and crops. And uh, this particular tool, you put in basic information, budget information, crop options, so on. And in the process, it will tell you what is the most profitable crop to grow under these circumstances and what's most profitable under dry land, rain fed or irrigated. So a wonderful tool that helps us uh, uh, really think about how uh, to prepare people to deal with drought and use water more efficiently. Well, when drought happens, uh, our role, one of our roles is to take action. And it's a critically important uh, point. And, and this is kind of the approach that we take. First of all, data-driven, applying the research that we know, applying decision support tools and best practices, practicing adaptive management, paying attention because uh, the drought changes decisions almost every day, and then taking care of families and children as we go through the process. We use the media to the best of our ability. And, and you know, uh, uh, a friend of mine told me once, never pass up an open mic. That's, that's one of our mantras. We'll use every method available to get the word out. Uh, we've done a lot of uh, educational programs. And so these are some of the, the crop-oriented programs that we've done this winter. And we adapt these programs depending on what the circumstances are. If it's more focused on drought, we'll go there. And, and you see that in some of the programs that we've done. Uh, we've done these beef webinars, and it's interesting. You look at that on Jan January 17th, you were being optimistic. If the drought ends, grazing and forage options, okay, it's, it's moderating, but it didn't end, okay. Uh, but the point is, lots of opportunities for people to be engaged, and, and the first two of these were actually delivered by Nebraska Educational Television Network, and so delivered statewide. The others delivered as webinars, and so we do a lot of that kind of work as well. We, uh, we stood up this we website last summer. Uh, by July 1st, we had this thing up and running, brought together all of the drought information that we had at the University of Nebraska into one spot. It was called droughtresources.unl.edu. And uh, this was particularly valuable as we went forward. Uh, you'll see that link on a number of different commodity board sites and others going forward. Uh, these are some of our publications and you can't read the small print, but the point that I would make to you is that two thirds of those articles have been published uh, in 2012 and 2013. So an effort to be really responsive in terms of new information around beef. We're very interested in communities, uh, doing irrigation audits, uh, helping uh, homeowners develop water conservation sites, uh, landscape renovation that helps homeowners conserve water. And that's uh, an opportunity for communities as well. Expanding our reach, something we're very interested in doing. Our CropWatch website is, is a key resource for us. Uh, you can see based on 2012 data, uh, 473,000 page views, uh, people from 176 countries. So people are using this information, it's out there and uh, it's part of the solution. 
Um, we're also using social media in incredible ways. And, and uh, Jenny Rees happens to be here in the audience today. Last December alone, just in December, okay, uh, she uses Twitter a lot. She put out 21 tweets, reached 3,800 people, almost 9,000 impressions. And, and so uh, social media is becoming a much, much more powerful tool that we're going to continue to use to really engage uh, with our learners uh, going forward. So that's a, that's a key part. You look at all the things that we did uh, last summer uh, uh, to, uh, to respond to this drought. These are the things that we did since August 2012. And you can look down through the list. There's a lot of things that we produced, a lot of things that we, we uh, generated and engaged people with. Uh, the bottom one maybe is the most interesting one. 284 presentations by extension professionals in Nebraska dealing with some aspect of the drought over 12,000 participants. So we are engaging a, a large number of people. The last point is the assessment piece. You know, the old model of extension was how many people came to your program? Well, we're always interested in that because it tells us whether or not people are interested in what we're doing, but we're much more interested in post-program knowledge gained, but we're really interested in changes in behavior or practice. And so that's what we do six, 12, 18 months after our program, re-engage with program participants and ask them, What's different? What are you doing differently? What have you adopted uh, going forward? So if we look forward for just a minute as we think about what UNL Extension uh, is doing to try to improve the work that we do and the difference that we make, uh, one of the things we know is that we need to continue to focus the work of our educators. You know, the old model of Extension is where Extension professionals know a little bit about a lot of things. And if that's our approach, we've just been replaced by Google or Wikipedia. It doesn't matter anymore. So we understand that a real opportunity is to help people like Chuck and Gary and Jenny focus their work and become a true expert in an area that makes a difference. And if we continue to do that, we have an opportunity to provide real value for our clientele. We need to strengthen our data resources. And I talked about data uh, just a minute ago, but uh, you know, you, we all know the incredible amount of data that's being collected in agriculture right now, if we could really capture and harness that data, on a statewide basis or a watershed basis or whatever, and use that data to help us make decisions that would further uh, uh, enhance our ability to respond. Pursuing opportunistic partnerships, I met, mentioned the partnership with Monsanto, we're very interested in continuing those kinds of things. Um, expanding the conversation around climate change, and you know, we talked a little bit about this yesterday. Uh, some people in agriculture just aren't willing to have this conversation yet. About a month ago, I was in Saline County, just uh, southwest of Lincoln, and Randy Pryor, one of our extension educators, was talking with a farmer about the carbon consequences of different, different farming practices. I thought, yes, yeah, we're starting to get there. We're starting to figure out how to have that conversation a little bit in ways that make sense. And then the last piece is to engage youth. And uh, you know, youth are our future. We need the young people that uh, we work with. We have 142,000 4-H youth in Nebraska. One out of every three age-eligible youth in Nebraska is in 4-H. We have a wonderful opportunity to have a conversation with young people about what all this means and as they look to the future, what their role might be. So in closing, our commitment, UNL Extension is committed to advancing the knowledge and practice of Nebraskans, certainly in this area, but in others. We're committed to being a relevant and reliable source of research-based information. We'll work together with all of you and others, farmers and everybody, anybody who wants to collaborate to solve problems and to create opportunities. And we will be responsive. When droughts hit, 
we'll be there and we'll, we'll respond and we'll help people deal with whatever comes their way. So hopefully I've given you an idea of what Extension is doing in Nebraska, our model, uh, the way we like to go about our work, the way we're focused on, on making a difference and demonstrating impact from the work that we do. Uh, Roberto, thank you very much. Roberto tells me we have time for one question if anybody has a question. Maybe you're ready for the break. Yes. My question is regarding the, some of the last points that you made around data and community and the preparedness and the way that we transmit this information or uh, made this information available to the public. In extension and having this as a background, how do you envision new technologies and the flow of information as a, a specific topic to pursue in order to achieve those last uh, challenges that you mentioned? Absolutely. So. <clears throat> Technology is going to flow in a number of different ways. And, you know, I, I think as more and more people really engage in technology and are become more open to technology, they're going to adopt or they're going to be more open to new ideas. And so that's a key piece. The communication piece and the, and the just-in-time nature of technology these days is really powerful. And, uh, and, and that's a real opportunity for us. And, and uh, it's one that, you know, if you're going to manage a social media network, it's one that you have to pay attention to. And I think that's a good thing because it keeps us really engaged in that. But I think the third point around technology transfer and especially using uh, new methods uh, is that we, we really have a tremendous opportunity to use the internet to develop uh, uh, courses, if you will, learning experiences that are different than ever, ever before. Uh, I was always amazed that at Purdue, there was a, a, a fluid dynamics uh, faculty member who, uh, I was teaching a junior level course and, and the students asked him for a more advanced component of that course. And so he stood up a MOOC, a, a massive on, uh, open online course. And uh, uh, they didn't really advertise it, they just kind of put it out there uh, using their normal social media. And over 700 people signed up for that six week course using a, a multi-dimensional learning array of, of resources, YouTube videos, PDFs, uh, et cetera. And so, those are the kinds of things that I think we can look forward in the future in terms of really sharing information with our clientele. Thank you all very, very much.